I'll be reading 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things for your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as also to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Well, I had the pleasure of meeting several people that I hadn't met before, and I uh, just want to add my voice to those that say, like, we, we're so, so glad that you're here. Um, whether this is the first time, second time, third time, uh, it, it's really a delight to be with God's people and uh, to uh, sing powerful words, <laughs> music. Wow, thanks, worship team. Just so moving. I'm already full. Um, but this is my favorite time, too, to open up Scripture. My name is Evan. I'm an associate pastor here. Uh, you've joined us, uh, whether this is your first time or you've been tracking with us all along, uh, in First Thessalonians. And uh, this is a group of new believers where Paul had to give them the gospel and then leave much earlier than he hoped to. And, uh, and he is writing back to them and, and dealing with just some of the, the cultural trends that they are running across and trying to strengthen them. And I have found that it has been strengthening my faith, and so that is my, my prayer for us today. And so let's, uh, let's dive into this passage. So I believe that there are two little words, two little words that are going to be on the screen here, that are easily missed and that they're going to unlock this passage for you. Um, and here they are, and, and also. Think about that second one first. When Paul says, and I also thank God constantly for this, it means that he thanked God for something previously. And so we got to figure out what exactly that was. And so that sends us back to chapter 1. For us, it's a couple weeks ago. In verses 2 and 3, when, when Paul writes this, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Almost the exact same words. Now, back in chapter 1, which of course you understand there were no chapters, there were no numbers to the people who were hearing this. It was just a moment ago that it was being read to them, right? So just a moment ago, Paul was thanking God for them about their fruitfulness. And he says, I remember before God and Father, then he lists three things. Your work that flows out of your faith, your labor that is motivated by love. And we talked about, it's actually manual labor. When you go out and you work hard for those that you love, he said, I thank God for that. And for the steadfastness that comes from your hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was thanking God for the fruit that was in their life. One of the cool things about that little section was that he was thanking God for things that later on he was going to have to confront because some of them weren't working hard, and some of them were being shaken in their faith, and some of them were taking the appearance of Christ and doing the wrong thing, sitting on mountains waiting for uh, him to come instead of working. So even though he had to deal with that stuff, he was still thanking God. Now today he's going to thank God for something else, that they responded to his preaching, which leads us to the other important word, and. 
So it tells us that it's very closely related to what came right before. If you were with us last week, you would remember that Paul was defending his team because he knew that if the charges that he and his his missionary team were were out for money, if they were just like fly-by-night frauds, if they accepted that as there were people charging, then they would just take the message and Paul would say, it's all in vain. Of course, Paul says it was not in vain. And so he closes his defense in our verse 12 and says, guys, I, I like a, it would call him a coach dad. He's like, I want you to run your race, stay on the course. I want you to walk worthy so that you'll enter the kingdom with me. I would be heartbroken if you did not walk into the kingdom with me. And then he goes right on, and there's no verse break there. It says, and I also thank God constantly for this. So he says, I thank God for all these things back. I thank him for the fruitfulness. I thank you that you heard our message, and I am so confident that you are going to enter the kingdom with me, and I'm thanking God constantly for this because it's a likely outcome. And so in our passage today, we're going to see Paul thankful for just a few things. He's thankful that they listened to his message, that they heard his message and said, yep, that's a message from God. He's going to thank God that they're imitating the other churches in an unusual way, suffering. And he's also grateful that God is going to judge those that are hindering the spread of the good news to everybody. So we could call this Paul's renewed gratitude for their response. And I'm going to say that today it's going to give us, as a congregation, even more reasons to thank God. So when we're setting out to thank God, uh, a lot of times we don't think about some of the things that we're going to see today. And I want to open up our eyes to the fact that we have a lot to thank God for. And we're going to find three more reasons to do so today. So verse 13, let's read it. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he says, I thank God for this. What's the this? He thanks them, that God, that they received the word of God. Now, This verse focuses on the relationship between the faithful proclamation of that team. Remember, he was defending his team. And so he says, this word of God came from us, but you didn't receive it as man's word. You received it as God's word. So he emphasizes both, and he really wants us to get it, so much so that he kind of repeats it in a couple of different ways and emphasizes it in this verse 13. So English kind of smooths it out. And here I'm going to put on the screen just a really pedantic literal translation, which is going to help you see Paul's emphasis. So here's what it's just like. If you just like, just like spell it out, it says this, having received the message of hearing. Okay. So you received the message, which you had heard. And then he has these two phrases from us of God. So the first thing that Paul wants to emphasize is that it came from us. His team was the messengers, but he, then he wanted to note it that it was ultimately of God. In other words, the message that came from us came from a different source. It came from God. Now, having made his point that this message came from us, he then denies that it was not a word of men. Well, it was a word from men. I mean, they were obviously giving it, but it was not merely a word from men. And they considered it that. But what it really is, the word of God. And so, 
that's the other way that he emphasized. He said, he said, word of God twice. And he said, as it really is, as it truly is. So you say, okay, Evan, we got it. You know, it's, it's from us. Okay. It came from men, but it was accepted as the word of God. We get it. Um, why is that important? Because you and I sitting where we are at today can't escape the fact that the word of God is from us. Every time we open up the scripture, this scripture was given, as the catechism says, holy men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit. We believe that this word was given through men who, who wrote this down, moved by the Holy Spirit. And so what we have here is a witness. Now, we believe that it is a, a faithful witness, and there's a whole, you know, science um, of canonicity, like, how did we get this thing? And, and those questions are answered, but it came from us. Now, even more importantly, the way that we encounter the Word of God is normally somebody who gave it to us. So t- sometimes we read it, but the first time we encountered it, somebody actually brought it to us. Now, I don't know if that was, you know, an evangelist or a preacher or a godly mom or dad or a grandparent or some random dude who handed you a pamphlet or somebody sitting at you, you know, with you in drip cafe and scrawling on a napkin and saying, hey, have you considered this? But it came from somebody, but it's important that it doesn't stay there. It becomes, in your mind, the word of God. So, so here's, here's what happens. I think it's important that we just need to be aware of how God passes it on. And, and that shouldn't keep us from recognizing what it really is. It's of God, the word of God. So if you accept that dynamic, let me just say this. That wasn't your conclusion. Something else was at work. And that's why Paul thanks God for it. Because God was the one who took the message that Paul was faithfully proclaiming and convinced them that it was from God. And so we should thank him for that, as Paul did. Now, the evidence that they responded in this way were two words, and we see this in the passage there. It says, you received it as the word of God. And then it also says, you accepted it. Are those two things the same thing, receiving and accepting? Well, they aren't the same. So receive simply means that you gave it a hearing. All right, they, they listened to what Paul was saying. Um, accepted means that it's actually considered right and proper. In other words, you said, hey, I, I'm actually going to take this. I believe this. Um, the other day, I answered the knock on the door, and uh, there were some well-meaning members of a worldwide sect who were very, very excited for me to know that there's the kingdom of God, and that if I would read this magazine that they're pressing on me, that I would know uh, how to get to this kingdom of God. Now, I thank them for their passion and their zeal, you know, for their message. And then I just said, but we have a problem here. Because how do I get into that kingdom? It's through, through Jesus, right? Yes. And I said, so is Jesus, like, who is he? Is he God? And they're like, oh, no. I said, He's a created being like me? They're like, yes. I said, that's a problem because I had sin that was eternal and only God could take care of it. And only the God-man could die for my sin. So we, we're standing at a real problem here. And so they kind of pressed the magazine and, you know, and, and they went on. And, and so what did I do? I gave them a hearing, all right? I received what they were saying, but did I accept it? I didn't accept it. You know, um, those of you who've seen Pixar's... Uh, 
inside out. I think about that time when your know, anger has got this thought bubble, like, Riley, you need to run away home. And, and he takes it and he, he puts it in the control board of the mind. And what happens to it? It gets sucked down, right? And, and all of a sudden it lights up. And they said, he said, it's done. She's accepted it. And that's the difference between the two. It's, it's taking the idea in. You know, do you remember the time when you gave the good news a hearing? And then you accepted it. Again, I don't know who presented it for you, but at that moment where it went from receiving to accepting, it was no longer merely the words of a man or woman in your mind. It was the word of God, and it was pulled into your imagination. And and all of a sudden, you realized what it was, that this was redemption. This was freedom. This was hope. This This was... You've been separate from God and without hope in this world. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, could this be true? Could I be reconciled with my creator? Could I have a purpose in this life? And you received it and you accepted it. That experience is what Paul was thanking God for. Now, how do you know when it's had that effect on you? Well, the verse here says that, which is at work in you believers. You know it's God when it goes to work. When it starts changing your soul. Now, believers in what? Believers in the person. Jesus is who he says he was. That he was the God-man in his work. That he died a sinner's death in our place. And that those who put their trust in him will be saved. And so it went to work in you like it went to work with them. Uh, Charlie spoke about uh, chapter 1, verse 9. In this beautiful poetic verse. where, Where Paul says, here's how it went to work at you. You turned to God from your idols to serve the living and true God. And in that moment, their world was turned completely upside down. You know, Paul was certain that he had reason to give thank because it had gone to work. Because he moves on to the next part, verse 14. How did he know that it was accepted? How does he know that God's word was at work in them? Well, he thanked them because they started suffering Um, for their decision. Let's read those verses. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So it immediately assured him that, that their acceptance was real was because they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. They immediately began following in the footsteps of the mother church. They became imitators. Now, normally when we imitate something or we mimic something, uh, we do it on purpose, right, consciously. Maybe you're the class clown and you're hoping to get a few laughs or or whatever. But but they didn't have a chance to do that. Something bigger at them was at work in them, and so they automatically started imitating the other church. Now, you may think, like, wow, that's your good news, Paul, that that they began suffering? Hmm, That's pretty much a downer. But the fact that they were suffering was really encouraging, and here's why. Number one, it proved that they were the same type of church. Notice that he says that they are the churches of God. It's God's church, and it's in Christ Jesus. So like that church in Judea, the first church in Jerusalem, um, they too belong to God. They are in Jesus Christ. Um, It's almost as if you could imagine 
in Christ, like Christ as a, a container of sorts. It's like in that container is, is the, the first church in Judea, and, and there's that church in Philippi who had listened, oh yeah, and the one in Athens, and you guys too, you guys are all in Jesus Christ. You are Christian, you are distinct, you are his. There's also another reason why this should be encouraging, because there was a, it was a pastoral reason why he was doing this. Why did Paul say uh, you guys started imitating that church, the one in Judea? These are folks that they had never met before. Uh, wouldn't it make more sense if Paul said, uh, you guys are just like the church down the road a little ways, you know, 100 miles to, to the east there, Philippi. You know, they're, they're similar to you. They're in Greece. Um, they're recently saved. Uh, you're more like them. You start imitating them. Why the church is in Judea? Well, that's because Paul never misses a chance to help people ground in their new identity. Remember, he called them the the churches of God. So he's saying, guys, I'm taking you, I'm planting you in a spiritual tradition that is not your own. From the beginning of scripture in Genesis 12, God came to Abraham and he said, through you, all the world will be blessed. Uh, the missionary pattern for Paul and even for Jesus was to go to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And that's one of the reasons why he always went to the synagogues first. It wasn't just logistics. This was something, it was a pattern. Jesus came and he preached to the Jews. But then you keep on having these, these Greek people or people from the surrounding regions come in and see the Messiah. And it began to spread out. That was always God's plan. And Paul delights to connect them to that very, very first church that was populated with Israelites and say, it went to the Jew first in Judea, and now it has also come to you. You're the same type of church. God is planting you in his redemptive plan. Well, how encouraging is that? You have a spiritual family now. Let's talk about the nature of their suffering. It says the same things that you also suffered from your own countrymen. Uh, Paul explains in what way they became imitators. They became imitators in suffering from their own countrymen. Now, we don't know exactly what those same things are, uh, but as far as we know, there was no formal persecution at this time. This was just the kind of thing that any new converts suffer when they have people who don't understand their conversion. Some of you can name these by experience because you have actually felt it. So maybe here are some of the same things, that you had friends that turned their back on you and say, wow, you're just no fun anymore. Why don't you do this with us anymore? Or I'm uncomfortable with that decision. We just don't connect anymore. Uh, Maybe you had a a career harm because of a choice that you made. Verbal abuse, maybe even physical harm in some cases. Um, Also, there's just this this narrative. You you become, uh, there's like this relentless bad portrayal of Christians. Like you see it in almost every movie. There's some religious fanatic that's trying to overthrow the world in their fanaticism. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you guys are like that. It It just weighs on you after a while. Yeah, Paul further explains that they not only suffer the same types of things, but they suffer them from their own countrymen. It's almost like insult to injury. 
we get this story from Acts 17.5, and we'd looked at that before, where uh, after some of the, the Jewish leaders that were in the synagogue, they saw that they were, they were losing converts over to Christianity. And so they went and they stirred up this mob and, and got the whole city in uproar. Paul had to be hustled out, and Paul's host, Jason, got dragged before the council. And, uh, and so it seems to be that the suffering actually started in the synagogue by the Jewish leaders, and then it kind of kept on going by the countrymen. Um, recently, this week, I learned about uh, a ninth, the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals uh, ruled in favor of the Pioneer Valley uh, chapter of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in, in San Jose. And the situation is, is this. Because those leaders, that group, required the leaders to affirm a statement of biblical sexuality, um, a teacher in that school said, we are going to, took it on himself to shut that group down. We don't want anything to do. Now, they were not pressing that belief on anybody. They were simply holding their meeting, as they had since the year 2000. And so they were, they were, de, they were deregulated or de-sponsored, not recognized. And so um, they were allowed to meet still, but they... They couldn't have a bank account, they couldn't advertise, they couldn't fundraise, they couldn't you know, post anything on the bulletin board, they didn't get priority, they couldn't have a teacher sponsor. So all these things happened when they were, were deregulated. Um, they were still trying to meet as a deregulated group, but that wasn't enough. Next came harassment and picketing and people infiltrating and recording and, and verbally abusing them. Boy, just think about how that affected you could walking into your school that day knowing that you had people who were going at you like that. Do you think that affected those high schoolers? Well, even though that it was ruled that, no, the school was, was discriminating against them, uh, these are the same types of things. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that being held back from a promotion at Raytheon or you know, going into school and having your group canceled is the same thing as what's happening in, say, like a Myanmar right now. You know, there we've got forced conversions. We've got, we've got an army going about doing atrocities. We've got torture. I, it, it, it is terrible. And, and guys, when it gets this intense, uh, we better call this persecution. And, and I do hope that we as believers who have not experienced that level of suffering we pray for our brothers and sisters, and there are tons of resources out there about how we can do that. But at the same time, I'm not saying that they're unrelated. They're actually related. It is, it is a difference in degree. These are all on the spectrum of the same things that they were facing. Remember, the Thessalonians weren't facing um, formal persecution. They were just facing run-of-the-mill opposition. You know, um, when we have experience this, and you may not be experiencing it now, but when you do, if you do, if we do as a nation, we need to come back to this, and we need to thank God, because what we've happened here is like we are firmly planted in his redemptive plan. We are partaking in something that, that the Judean churches and Philippi and Thessalonica and countless thousands of brothers and sisters have gone through, and we can actually say, this is an evidence that what I accepted was truly the gospel. Now, the final two verses surprise us a little bit, and it may even make us a little bit uncomfortable. Paul just goes off on the Jews. 
Now, opponents of Christianity have been quick to point out that verses like these have been used to fan the flames of anti-Semiticism throughout history. This was especially true in the medieval time where, uh, where Jews as a whole were characterized as Christ killers. This is something that the Third Reich picked up, and even though there was just a thin veneer of Christianity, and good Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and many other churches resisted them because it just went against the Christian ethic, verses like these were still used to say, these people are Christ killers. They are, they, they are unhuman. So much so that in 1965, the Vatican saw fit to put out a, a statement that said, this, this is not the case. They renounced the idea of the collective Jewish responsibility for Christ's death. And so the idea is, is vicious enough that it needs to be repudiated by name. So let's read these strong words and then just want to make a few notes about them. So verse 14 ends with the Jews. Verse 15 says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So first question, is this collective anti-Jewish rhetoric? I would say that this is very, very specific to a certain group of Jews. The one who, historical fact, killed the Lord Jesus. One commentator noted it would be helpful if the comma was removed. In other words, the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. In other words, it's a very, very specific group of people. Paul himself, of course, would have fallen into this category. He said that he gave approval and he was holding the garments. And so he was approving those who did this and it haunted him. Second of all, it does not include all Jews because the account says in Acts 17 that many Jews came to Jesus in his preaching. It didn't include the ones in Judea who came to faith. And so this is targeted at a very, very specific group of people who were actively resisting the gospel. Now, was this something that was motivated by hate? No, it's motivated by love. Paul wanted the entire world to be saved, and his passion included his countrymen. Um, and he was so passionate that he was willing to be doomed that they could be saved. And that's in Romans 9. He says, I would be condemned if my countrymen would come to God. And that included these people. So even in these strong words, we can give thanks. The last thing that we should give thanks for is that you will be vindicated in the end. So this passage here says that those who cause the suffering and those who hinder the spread of the gospel will answer for what they have done. And Paul is going to do this. He's going to list their sins, just like bam, 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 bam. And then he's going to say, here's a couple of effects. And then he's going to say, and here's how God responds. So here are their sins. Who killed both the Lord Jesus. The word order is the Lord having killed Jesus. It's a way of emphasizing that who they killed was the Lord. But wait a second, didn't the Romans kill Jesus? Well, there's a reason it doesn't say crucify, because that would have pointed back to the Romans. For Paul, it's the ones that instigated it, that they get all of the blame here. It says, and the prophets. Now, Paul is just doing what Jesus did also, the very words of Jesus on the screen here. Here's what he said to the people who were persecuting his followers or will persecute. 
you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some who you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So notice here that Jesus doesn't pull any, any words either. And he also says that there's more bloodshed to come. And this is why Paul didn't hesitate to say, you're persecuting prophets. Him and, Ty- and Timothy and Silas were prophets. Jesus even looked forward to that they would, they would kill him. They would crucify him. Another sin. And they drove us out. Apparently, we've, you know, this is obviously, this is his rushed departure from the city. And then Paul says, the people who, who have caused you suffering have done the same to, to Jewish believers and to missionaries and to prophets and to the Lord himself. And once again, he just says, you, you guys have a spiritual lineage. Uh, this is nothing new. Part of their sin is that they displease God. That's God's response. He's very much displeased. And then Paul says, and oppose all mankind. In other words, they are committing crimes against humanity. How? How do they oppose all mankind? By opposing the gospel that could save them. So Paul's just listed their sins. Here we go, bam, bam, bam. And then he said, here's a couple of effects of them. What you have done is that you have hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. How did they oppose mankind? By hindering us from preaching. He says, and here's another effect. It fills up the measure of their sins. It's as if their sin, as a, here's another bucket. Uh, you know, your, their sin is they're just storing it up. They're just, just filling this bucket up. If you've ever been to one of those uh, amusement parks, you know, water parks that has got one of those 300-gallon buckets where water is pouring in it, you know, before it tips over, you kind of get the picture. Paul just says, you, you're filling up the measure of sin. Then he talks about God's wrath. He says, but God's wrath, wrath has come upon them at last. So he, he says, and they oppose, and they oppose, and they oppose, but, but wrath has come on them at last. They won't succeed. They've always sinned, but at last wrath will come. Wrath, wrath is a, a punitive outworking of God's righteous indignation against sin. And the thing about wrath is that it's always slow burning. It's something, it takes a long time. But when it reaches a certain point, it overflows. And it is never an out of control thing. It is something that God, he warns against and he preaches against and he appeals and he appeals, but he stores it up. And when it comes, it overflows. In this phrase here, wrath is is personified. We know it's God's wrath, but it doesn't say that. It's like it's a person. It's a character. And it's almost as if it's a traveler on a path. So, so they're on a path, a certain path of destruction. And behind them comes this, this character, wrath. And it says that it comes upon them. Uh, another translation of that is overtaken them. In fact, the, the CSB says this, wrath has overtaken them at last. You know, that's quite a picture. You know, they're on this path and wrath, driving a steamroller, is catching up to them. 
and it will catch up to them when? At the last, at the judgment time. And that judgment is so sure that it's spoken of in the past tense. It has come upon them. It's like this is an absolute guarantee from God. You know, thanking God for uh, vindication may feel to us wrong. It may feel, I don't know, vindictive, say. Maybe we hesitate to thank God for his wrath that, that takes out those that oppose the gospel. Um, some of our reticence, I think, has to do with our cultural position. Uh, those who have been on the mission field or write about missions, they know that we as Westerners struggle with this concept of God's judgment more than other cultures. In fact, cultures that have seen great brutality, such as the genocides in Rwanda or Congo or Albania or Croatia, those cultures don't struggle with it very much. Their hope is, their hope is that all wrongs will be repaid, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's actually a key component of their faith. In his book, uh, The Reason for God, uh, the late Timothy Keller uh, quoted a Croatian theologian that taught at Yale. His name was uh, Miroslav Volf. And uh, Miroslav basically said, Westerners do not understand the nature of the vengeance of God and the comfort that it brings. He said, in fact, God's vengeance, the fact keeps us from this endless cycle of violence. The only thing that will keep us from our revenge killings that is part of our culture is to realize that there is a God who does note and it someday through divine violence, which only he is allowed to do, will end it. That thought gives us comfort. And he says this idea that, that a God, a good God, cannot be a God of judgment. He says this, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that God is not a judge. In the sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, such an idea will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. You see, not everybody thinks and finds it as distasteful as we do. In a follow-up conversation in the same book, uh, Tim Keller talked to, talked to a woman who said, I cannot believe that there is a God, a good God, who can judge and he just pointed out that non-Western cultures do not struggle. In fact, they struggle with the idea of a forgiving God because it runs so counter to their sense of what is right. He says, in traditional societies, the teaching about turning the other cheek makes absolutely no sense. It offends people's deepest instincts about what is right. For them, the doctrine of a God of judgment, however, is no problem at all. He concluded by asking the woman gently, um, do you think that your culture is superior to these non-Western ones that think of God in that way? Her immediately answer was, was no. Well, then he said, why should your culture's objections to Christianity trump theirs? You see, we all come from a cultural way of thinking, and so we don't like this idea of a God who judges. But to thank God for ultimate vindication is not hate. On the contrary, we earnestly hope, as Paul did, that all will be saved. But to the extent that it hinders the spread of the gospel, we find comfort that God will put an end to it. So I'm going to put three things up on the screen here about what we have to thank God for. Um, we have more to thank God for than we know. Uh, one of the uh, commentators, he's in public domain, his name is Matthew Henry. He was kind of a Puritanish guy. One, one time he was robbed 
okay, by a highwayman. And he wrote in his journal afterwards, he said, let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. Fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. You know, it just makes me realize that we have a lot more to be thankful for than, than we know. Um, our very response to the gospel, if the word that was from us, in other words, God's word or the faithful proclamation of it, you saw like the source of that is from God. Guys, that is from God. That came from him and we thank him for it. If you have experienced suffering and, and all of a sudden you realize like this is an evidence that what I accepted was true, then that is something to be thankful for. And even the grim prospect of our vindication on the day of judgment is something to thank God for. Uh, these are things that we may not thank him for, but should. And we need to add that to our, our arsenal of prayers. So in a moment, uh, as, as uh, Larry plays for us, I, I want us to take just a, like 30 seconds to thank God. I'm going to leave those things on the screen um, so that you can do that. But before we do that, I just want to say this. Uh, if, if you were at that point where you've been with us for a while and you know, you've received the word. You've given it a hearing. Right? You, you, thank you for listening. But have you come to that point where it made that migration to where you accepted it? Where you said, this is right and this is good. This is proper. The person of Jesus Christ, that he is a teacher unlike no other, but he's more than a teacher. He's God. And he took the penalty for my sin. And I've been listening to that, and I've been weighing it, and now I believe this is God's word. <laughs> and I say today, accept it. God gives great words of hope. It's actually a simple transaction. If you believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's how that works. It says that for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so if that's you and you say, well, I, I want to accept this, then in this 30 seconds, why don't you just tell that to God and let it migrate and say, yes, God, this is your word, and I accept it. And so let's just take this moment to thank God. I'm going to give us just about 30 seconds, and then the, uh, the worship team will close us in a song. Let's do this. <laughs>